Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Just as I get to do here on Saturday and Sunday mornings, I'm going to start out talking with James and AJ. I'm glad at least two people remembered to a spring forward, but I've got a couple of open lines. Grab the other two anytime you like. 210-599-5555. Also want to say a big thank you to uh, David Vaughn, who came over and talked about trees. I will admit, I learned, uh, you know, just when you bring in the best experts in the best fields, it's just fun to sit and listen. And that's what I got to do to, for at least uh, an hour with David Vaughn yesterday. And uh, big thanks. Uh, David has retired for Metro Tree Care and is doing uh, just consulting work now. And, I mean, he's just the best of the best in the arborist world out there. So, anyway, lots of thank yous and uh, uh, a lot of fun out there as well. Let's go ahead and get some phone calls. We've got a lot of things we can talk about a little bit later in the show. But we start out with James. Good morning, sir. Morning, Bob. How you doing this morning? You know, it's uh, my favorite day of the year. I love that extra hour of daylight in the evening. And, uh uh, I guess I agree with some people who say, you know, we shouldn't be jumping back and forth. But, man, I wish they'd just put daylight savings on year-round because uh, I know it's going to be dark when I go to work pretty much 365 days a year. And uh, I don't know about you, but I sure enjoy that evening daylight. So uh, we'll put up with a little inconvenience today, a little sleepiness maybe. Well, that uh, running around in the morning with the lights out, I'm used to that. i got a rechargeable <laughs> <laughs> uh, flashlight, so my lifestyle. I know what you're talking about. Well, what's going on in your world? Hey, they were talking about um, wanting to do uh, cover crops in the hoop house from the middle of July to the uh, middle of November. Yeah. And what are we planting? I'm going, I don't know. Let me talk to Bob. One guy said buckwheat, but I don't know. Would vetch work or? Vetch, it's, uh, vetch would work. Uh, I'd be planting bush beans, you know. I'd be planting something that I can pick from. And bush beans, well, any sort of, uh, you know, bean on the ground, even soybeans, uh, those, those things are going to be doing what you want to do as far as putting some organic material back in the soil and adding a little bit of nitrogen to the soil, too. They just... Uh, you know, we have summer legumes and we have cool weather legumes. To me, vetch is more of a cool weather legume, but uh, it'll grow in the summer. But you know, what are you gonna what are you gonna get from it? I can plant bush beans. I can plant black eyed peas. There are a lot of things I could plant that would serve as a very good cover crop and yet give me something to harvest from as well. Well, the plan was uh, to grow a cover crop and then cover it over with uh, once it's finished. Uh, We'd whack it down, cover it over with the uh, weed barrier, and let the worms take care of it. I, I, you know, sounds good to me. I'm not fond of weed barriers, but uh, I just throw a little bit of compost on top of it to help it keep breaking down. But uh, there's there's nothing wrong with a cover crop that you can get some benefit out of. It's my only point. Yeah, Uh, pick from it, enjoy it, and. you know, smother it, uh, and that's another thing about 
planting a cover crop like that. In fact, there's some things that uh, you, some of you guys actually call smother crops instead of cover crops because they not only serve as cover crops, but they tend to smother the weeds underneath. And uh, uh, like I say, I, just my choice would be something that I can pick from if I choose. And any of those low-growing uh, beans or, of course, black-eyed peas are really just a bean. They're not a true pea. But uh, that's what I'd be thinking about for a cover crop. But, yeah, there are lots of choices out there. There are lots of different green things that you could grow and then, uh, you know, plow under or simply cover up. But me, I'd be planting beans. I'd be throwing a little bit of compost on top to help them break down and looking forward to fall. Yeah, that sounds like a plan. I've got to uh, keep those, uh, I don't know, I've got a proliferation of earthworms in there. I gotta, uh, <laughs> I'm worried about feeding them. Well, I thought the, the the roots from the uh, the dead and dying uh, cover crop would give them a whole bunch to eat. Oh, sure, sure. And James, you know, you can. I mean, there's so many things you could do if you want to give those worms a lot to eat. Uh, when your cover crop starts giving up on you, go ahead and cover with newspaper. Uh, earthworms love to eat newspaper and. Uh, better still, if you could run it through a paper shredder or something like that and really turn it into a mulch, all the papers these days are printed with soy ink, which doesn't bother the soil, doesn't bother the worms. And uh, there are people who do, I'm not sure exactly what, <laughs> it, it's a form of vermiculture, and I'm sure there's a name for, you know, newspaper worm raising, but there are people who raise uh, earthworms on nothing but shredded newspaper. So why not, you know, use that as something to pile up on top of your green cover crop and your earthworms will love you for it. Well, let me tell them guys that Bob's recommending beans. Yeah. And beets. How about that? I, that would sound, <laughs> I like to be totally honest with you and that's sure what I'd be doing. And, uh, uh, again, beans, whether it's uh, either it could be bush beans, it could be soybeans, it could be uh, black-eyed peas, any of those things would accomplish being legumes. Of course, you know they're the ones that form little nodules on the roots with the bacteria that pull the nitrogen out of the air and convert it into forms that the plants can use directly. And uh, I just uh, I, I, I very much like legumes as cover crops, and uh, those things will thrive in the heat, and we're not trying to make a a beautiful, you know, growing plant. We're trying to get something that's going to build the soil. And if we get to pick some beans from it and, you know, enjoy it, a uh, good old contender or, you know, top crop or one of those uh, bush beans that takes the heat or one of your uh, different edamames, one of your different soybeans, man, why waste the space with something you can't eat? Well, I used to pick beans for my old gray-haired mama, and uh, I would miss quite a few, and uh, I would complain that the, the plants were green and the beans were green, so she fixed me up. She planted uh, yellow wax beans, and now I have no excuse. <laughs> Another good choice, James. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Hey, it's always a pleasure. You have a great week, and we'll maybe talk again next weekend. Uh, I'll move on to A.J., and then it'll be Johnny and Clyde. Good morning, A.J. Good morning, Bobby. How are you doing? Well, you know, I am just up and enjoying the day. How about yourself? I know you're an early riser because, you know, you have to you have to get up and get your stuff done before other people start finding things for you to do, and you don't want to avoid any of those situations that you and I talk about periodically. Hey, you read between the lines. <laughs> Been there, done that. Yeah. Bobby, what, 
What fire ant bait do you recommend these days? The only one out there that really works is uh, the spinosad bait that they sell under the name of Come and Get It. Um, you do need to store it in a cool place. The, the spinosad, nothing ever goes bad or goes wrong with the spinosad, but it, uh, um, the bait, the, the attractant that it is put on can get rancid if it gets too hot. So be sure you're buying it from a nurseryman that hadn't had it sitting out in the sun and be sure that, uh, until you use it up, that you keep it, you know, at no more than room temperature, uh, put it out either morning or evening. I don't like putting it out in the heat of the day, but, uh, that's really the only bait that I find that really works on fire ants. Now you can put out dry molasses and it'll run them off, but if you want to kill them and uh, I, I'm, I'm not fond of fire ants in the garden. I mean, out in the fields, they kill ticks. They do some good things, but in the garden, in the yard around my house, I don't want any fire ants and come and get us what I use. All right. Okay. Now, my second situation, uh, normally I'll buy my tomato plants when, they're, when they uh, are small and I'll bring them home and then take them out of those little six-packs and put them in some larger pots to get the plant to get taller so mm-hmm. I can bury them deeper. And then I'll stick them in the ground. When do, do I apply the Epsom salt when I dig the hole the first time? Well, uh, when I... Or, or how do I do that with the Epsom salts? Well, remember that the Epsom salts are not taken up by the tomato. Uh, there's nothing. It's, it's not like something that's absorbed through the roots. It's not something that makes the tomato grow better. What the Epsom salts do is bring the calcium-magnesium uh, ratio in the soil back into balance. So you're not, you're not giving the tomato something to consume. You're changing the soil uh, the nature of the soil to where you avoid that situation known as blossom end rot. So, you know, what I would be doing because, you know, while your tomatoes are, are in their little pots, whatever size they are, you're not worried about blossom end rot. You're not worried about uh, the tomatoes setting fruit and putting it on. About the time that I was potting my tomatoes up into that little bit bigger container, you know, I'd have my spots in the garden where I was getting ready to plant them. I'd have those already going. I'd have some uh, fertilizer down. I'd have some compost on top of it. I'd go ahead and sprinkle the Epsom salts just in a kind of a, a wide circle around every spot where I was going to put a tomato plant. So you can do it any time you like, but but it's not really for the benefit. You're not changing anything within the tomato plant, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You're changing the soil that you're potting your tomato to plant into so as long as you get it done by the time that plant's in the ground and starting to grow you're just fine you do it when it uh, suits aj not not by any calendar or not by anything else you're doing in the garden okay with rock phosphate same thing rock phosphate is different rock phosphate needs to go in the bottom it needs to go underneath a tomato plant. Let me put it that way. Now, if you wanted to put a layer of rock phosphate in the bottom of your four-inch pot, let's say that you're transplanting into, and then figure that when you take the plant out of the four-inch pot and put it on in the ground, you're still going to have that cake of rock phosphate around the roots, that will work fine. But once again, that's something that's really going to benefit the plant at the time that it starts to bloom and set fruit. So I wait and just put the rock phosphate underneath the plant when I go from that uh, from that 
uh, smaller pot into the ground, that's the time I put my rock phosphate on because that is something that is actually being taken up, being used by the plant. And that's why we don't blend it into the soil because then it would get tied up in a non-soluble form. It's why we actually put just a clump of it underneath the plant and let the plant grow its roots down into it. So rock phosphate for me goes in at the time I put the tomatoes actually out in the garden. Okay. One more situation, Bobby. Uh, I'm going to order uh, marigold seeds when I receive, uh, receive them in. What's the best way to keep them just at room temperature? Or nah, put, them put, them, put them in the refrigerator. But put them in a jar and put them in the refrigerator. The old refrigerators that we grew up with that our mothers and grandmothers had, they had lots of humidity inside, and we just put the seeds uh, in the pack directly in the refrigerator. Today's you know, magical frost-free refrigerators, they've got that humidity down so low that it will dehydrate your seed. So put your seed, whether it's in the package, whether it's in an envelope, uh, I mean, you look in the back of my refrigerator, I've almost got more seeds in there than I do food, but it's all inside of quart mason jars with a lid on it just to keep them from drying out excessively until I get them planted. Do you do you tighten that lid up so it's, it's yeah. more or less sealed, or you just put the lid on it? I put the, it's sealed, but I'm not cranking it down like I would if I were, you know, if I were taking them out of the canning bath. Um, I'm, I'm not going to have the, uh, I'm not going to have the lid on that tightly, but I'm going to have them covered because I want that humidity staying inside the jar, not going out, uh, to be evaporated out in that pan underneath the refrigerator. Okay, Bobby. I think that's, I think that's all. Uh, and so everything is quiet otherwise. And so, uh, we'll talk to you later and I do thank you. Well, you know, it's always pleasure, AJ. You have a great uh, Sunday and a good week, and we'll talk again soon. All right. Back to gardening. Back to the phone lines. Johnny's up first. Good morning, Johnny. Good morning, Bob. I am moved about 120 miles north of San Antonio. I'm going to do a new lawn. Okay. I'm using from San Augustine, Del Mar. It's a little sunny and not too windy. I think it would be too cold for it. Oh, no, sir. No, sir. The only St. Augustine I'd be concerned about, and I don't think 120 miles is far enough to be a problem. If you're moving to the Metroplex, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, I might be a little concerned about Floritam because it is not as cold-hardy. But 120 miles north of San Antonio, you go right on with the Del Mar the uh, Palmetto, if it's a super sunny area, Floritam is still probably about your best choice. But no, St. Augustine is a very common lawn grass all the way up into North Texas, and it's not one out of 50 years that we ever get cold enough to be a problem. And uh, it's been a long time, probably be a long time more until that could ever be a concern. And where you are, I doubt that it ever would be. You're the best, Bob. Appreciate your help. Always a pleasure, Johnny. Appreciate the call this morning. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right. Clyde's next. And Robert and Tommy. Good morning, Clyde. Uh, Bob, thank you for taking my call. Thank you for remembering daylight savings time and being there to talk this morning. <laughs> yes, was, sir. It was kind of weird this morning, you know, because like, everything's still dark. You know? uh, it was very dark when I left home, but, you know, it's... Yeah. Uh, 
and we'll we'll get the blessing of it this evening when we get an extra oh, yeah. hour of daylight and i don't know about yes, you sir. but my to-do list is pretty darn long and i need that extra hour oh, yeah. to even make a start on yes, it sir. yeah exactly exactly listen i've got a two-part question it's in regarding to corn okay uh this is the first time i'm going to try and raise some corn in my garden mm-hmm. and i've always tried to uh grow everything organically you know with cow manure Medina has to grow and stuff like that. Right. Do you have any suggestions on how to grow my corn and uh, fertilize organically? I don't want to use uh, chemical fertilizers in oh, the yeah. garden. No, I've grown beautiful corn uh, just working the the uh, Medina growing green in before I just, you know, as I plant. And then I'll follow it up with some liquid has to grow, and I'll put my sweet corn up against anybody's. Uh, the okay. The most important thing for you to do, Clyde, is don't plant one long row of corn because corn is wind pollinated you want to plant several rows side by side now if you've got 10 acres of garden maybe you want to Uh plant long rows but it's uh let's say that that you planned on planting 100 feet of corn i'd want to see five 20 foot rows side by side or four 25 foot rows side by side because that way you know, every ear, every kernel in that ear of corn has to have a, a pollen grain land on one of those silks that comes up out of the top of the developing deal. And if you've just got one row, uh, it's not going to be nearly as efficient as when you got a plant, you know, on either side as well producing pollen. Okay. So uh, that's the okay. principal thing. And remember that corn is... Uh, you know, it loves the hot sun. Uh, it needs to, you need to get your corn in the ground pretty soon, as soon as you feel like we're past the danger of freezing weather, because uh, it's going to, you know, we don't we don't grow corn much in the middle of the summer because problems with midges sure. and things like that. But uh, right. uh-huh. uh, be planning how you're going to keep the raccoons out, because oh, they... Well, I don't have any problems with, uh, you know, varmints or anything like that. <laughs> in fact, now that you mentioned about getting the corn in, I actually got it in already. Oh, outstanding. I'm, I'm watering it. Uh, but uh, I'm always, uh, like I said, I've used uh, coffee grinds, eggshells, organic fertilizer, mm-hmm. common manure, Medina has to grow. Can I go ahead, as soon as it comes up, can I throw some, like, Medina has to grow granules on top of it? Oh, sure. Okay. Sure. I don't think you need to. Uh, uh-huh. If you if you oh, put okay. some of it down before you plant it, I, I personally would, at that point, go with a has to grow. I go with a liquid okay. because... Uh, okay. Uh, it just, the plants use it so much faster. Now, when you put your dry fertilizer under the lever, layer, layer of soil, uh, it's okay. going to be available pretty quickly. But I'm I'm not much, other than turf grass and things like that, I'm not much in just throwing it on top of the ground in the vegetable garden. Uh, when okay. things are up and growing, I'm going to switch over to the liquid has to grow or, you know, okay. good liquid product. How about uh, like the fish emulsion uh, fertilizer? The liquid? That's fine, too. Yeah. That's fine, okay. too. Now, do you pour it right on top of the corn itself or just into the soil right next to it? I don't pay any attention. <laughs> I'm, I'm oh, walking okay. along with a watering can or a bucket. Okay. I, I've got about, okay. uh, what do I have, 10 or 12 uh, ranch buckets, three-gallon buckets. Okay. And, and the way okay. that I go about fertilizing in my garden with that i'll have those buckets lined up i'll walk along with a jug and pour the approximate amount of has to grow in each one and then i've got the hose because i don't have a lot of a lot of high water pressure in my garden i'll stick the hose down in one bucket and when that bucket fills up 
I'll move it to the next bucket, and while it's filling, I'm just walking down the road, just pouring as I go, and um, <laughs> I don't, okay. you know, I don't worry about whether it gets directly on the corn or whether it okay. gets all in the ground next to it. It's just one of those things that we don't have to be so exact and precise in what we do, and uh, I'm just interested in getting the job done. Okay, now how about uh, every two or three weeks that I yeah. uh, re-fertilize yeah. it? Every couple of weeks. Corn loves fertilizer. I mean, it okay. uh, it yeah. loves that stuff. And, of course, being organic, uh, the fertilizer is available over a much longer period of time. So okay. I'd aim for doing it every two weeks. And uh, as Dave Ramsey okay. says, if life happens and it's three weeks or four weeks before you get to it, you're still going to okay. grow good corn. Okay, one other question on the corn, and then I'll let you go to the other uh, uh people on the phone but uh when i if i do if, if i am successful in growing some pretty good sized corn and if they start growing yeah. do you have any organic uh, uh a spray for the worms and stuff like that like yeah just oil? just bt bt oh, yeah just okay. uh get in the habit of spraying periodically with bt by periodically i mean uh Every week, every other week, what you might do is if you're setting aside a given amount of time to work in the garden, plan on doing your liquid fertilizer one week, doing your uh, BT spray the next week, then back to liquid fertilizer, then back to BT spray, and your problems will be minimal. Okay, as soon as I as soon as I start seeing the uh, corn growing itself, do I spray it directly onto the corn itself? Yes, directly onto the corn because the way it okay. works, the caterpillar right. takes a bite of something that has the BT on it. Uh, it's okay. a stomach poison. The caterpillar then stops feeding immediately and dies within a day or two. Okay, very good. Okay. Well, and I, I would start that, you know, about the time you see the tassels starting to appear at the top of the okay. ears, that's the time you want to really okay. be starting out with your BT. Okay, very good, Bob. Thank you very much, and uh, tell everybody I said hello there at the radio station. I've been listening to you for quite a, quite some time now, <laughs> and I've learned everything basically from you and a couple of things, you know, by listening to people at the, uh, you know, nurseries and stuff well, like that. Well, just go from your own experience, Clyde. If it works for yeah, you, if it's even if it's different from what I say, long as it's not using something toxic, just do what works in your garden and uh, let me know how that corn goes. It's uh, it, there's just nothing much better than uh, than a good ear of corn. And uh, golly, you're making me hungry just thinking about it. So good luck yeah. with it. And call me if I can help you any further. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it very much. Have Always a, a pleasure. You too. Thanks Bye. so much. Bye. Robert's next. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. Um, excuse me. I live over here at Medina Lake. Yes, sir. And um, I'm fixing to plant some fruit trees, a couple of fruit trees that I got. Okay. How far should they be from the leach field of the septic? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Their their roots aren't going to cause any problem to a leach field. I mean, if they grow down in and around your drain pipes, they're not going to, you know, the the purpose of a leach, leach field is to get the liquid components uh, out and soaked into the ground. And if you get some roots uh, down in that area, the roots are just going to take it up and use liquid just the same as they would anywhere else. I don't think I'd necessarily plant right on top of it. But, you know, if you're five or ten feet away, you're doing just fine. And we're not worried about anything from the uh, the black water that comes out of your septic tank. We're not worried about 
uh, that being taken up by the fruit trees in any way, form, or fashion. Now, if you that's what I was worried about. Yeah, if you had an aerobic system that was spraying, you know, the liquid out over the surface of the ground. Number one, that stuff so highly treated with chlorine, it wouldn't be good for your plants, and there might be some question of contamination. But uh, down underneath the ground, no, those roots aren't going to take up anything that would cause any problem to anybody. Oh, okay, because I was worried about eating the fruit, you know, being too close to the septic. No, don't worry about that. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Good question. Appreciate the call. Thanks, Robert. All right. Back to gardening. Back to the phone lines. It's uh, Tommy's turn. Good morning, Tommy. Good morning, Bob. Morning, Uh, sir. I don't have access to uh, where I live here in Freer. We don't don't have a nursery anywhere around here. Right. I I needed to ask you about... uh, what do you know about these hot houses in Kalamazoo, Michigan? I guess they're—I guess he means greenhouses. And you know anything about them? What What are you asking me about the structures themselves, or what they grow? Uh, yeah, what they grow because uh, that's what the Super S store here has. And I, I got to talk to the truck driver the other day who was unloading them, and uh, all you know, right. That's- yeah, they they produce some good asparagus crowns. They produce uh, some perennial type crops. Now, I don't think blueberries are going to do very well in Freer, nor are raspberries, which are things that they grow very well up in Michigan. But um, uh, you know, you could probably trust their figs. Like I say, you can definitely trust their asparagus crowns uh, if they're growing them in. Inside greenhouses, uh, the vegetable plants uh, would be, you know, if they're the right variety, it wouldn't be much difference in growing them in a greenhouse in Michigan than it would be growing them in a greenhouse in San Antonio, Texas. The days are shorter, and, um, you know, I guess it gives those northerners something to do in the winter months, but uh, I, I would be very careful about what you buy because they can grow a wide variety of plants, everything from rhubarb to sugar maples that were no way in heck they're going to grow in South Texas. But if you simply go buy the varieties, um, they're going to work out you know, just fine. You're going to be basically either buying bare root plants, and I think that's what they sell the most of. But uh, just just look at what they're look at what they're selling, and ask yourself, will it grow here? And beyond that, it doesn't really matter whether it came out of Kalamazoo, whether it came out of Southern California, or whether it came out of Florida, uh, or whether it came out of uh, Seguin. Uh, so I, I'm not opposed to it, but they do produce a lot of things that won't grow here. So be very careful what you buy. Yeah. Well, there. Uh, what I'm only thing I'm going to buy there is tomato plants. Yeah. That's all I care about growing. And uh, uh, what do you know? Have you ever heard of a homely homer? <laughs> That's uh, a that great name, but I've never heard that. of that one. I, I will tell you, Tommy. There are some tomato plants that are cooler weather varieties so i consider things like that an experiment you know and i i plant some stuff every year that i have no idea if it's going to grow well some of it does some of it doesn't and that's why i try to keep careful records i i would still be you know if um if i had no source of tomato transplants i'd be growing some of my own from seed but uh beyond that uh 
Uh, I, I do a little research on the varieties, and most of what they grow is probably going to do fine here in South Texas. But there are even Siberian tomatoes. I mean, they grow tomatoes all over the place. And some of the those varieties, there must be, you know, 5,000 different kinds of tomatoes. And some of them may not do as well down here as they do in the cooler climates. But the majority of them are going to be fine. Just keep a record of what you've planted. I would recommend as always, staying with more with indeterminate or semi-determinate varieties than I would be with the determinates, but homely, homely Homer. <laughs> I mean, I love that name. That's almost as good as Radiator Charlie's Mortgage Lifter Tomato. Uh, be fun to try, but uh, uh, whether it's going to tolerate our summer's heat, uh, uh, just keep records. And, you know, uh, you guys know a little bit about heat and rattlesnakes down in Freer. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, he was saying that they actually outlawed them in california or somewhere uh because they're so ugly (laughs) hey listen california's got no when i look at some of the politicians in california man if it were a crime to be ugly they'd be they'd all be in jail (laughs) well anyway he said they were they're good tasting now i don't want those what i want to grow is uh i need you for you to tell me again that cherry tomato that you like, that smaller tomato that you like. That, that I love. Uh, I love sun gold. I mean, sun gold is uh, is probably well, it's certainly my favorite cherry. It's the one that I eat most of because my summertime routine is walk into the garden, pick and eat about twenty sun golds directly off the plant, and then go to work with whatever else I need to do. But uh, I, again, I like variety. There may come a year when the sun gold doesn't produce as well, but the cherries are always going to give you, especially with your really hot nights as we get into the summertime. Cherries are going to give you a lot more production than big fruited tomatoes so i'd be looking at sun gold for a good yellow cherry i'd be looking at uh maybe sweet 100 for a good red cherry uh black the the so-called black cherry i know is out there available and that's a good one i tried growing one called snow white a couple of years ago and it was an odd tomato and it tasted good but my gosh i did got about 10 percent as much harvest from that one as i did from some of the others there's a uh, a big teardrop shaped tomato called juliet that is one of the uh yeah it's that's one of the most heavy producers out there i don't i don't think the flavor is quite as good as some of the others but it's still better than anything you're going to get in the grocery store okay a couple weeks ago i heard or last weekend you were talking about that juliet and you only had two plants and you just couldn't couldn't i mean i was picking a quart a day off of two plants okay that's the one i want Okay, we'll plant some sun gold along with it, and uh, okay. and you can make a real pretty red and green salad out of it. You'll have good flavor and good nutrition, too. Well, that, that answers my questions. I sure thank you. Always a pleasure, Tommy. Good luck with it. Let me know how you do, and let me know how your Kalamazoo, uh, your Kalamazoo experiments work out. I look forward to hearing from you. I, I will do it. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. Uh, Sarah's turn next, and it'll be Dave and Faye. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Happy spring. <laughs> Happy daylight savings. Yeah. It's not quite yeah. spring yet. That uh, vernal equinox is still a little ways away, but uh, well, it's a. Uh, okay. Happy pre spring. <laughs> <laughs> Any day I can walk out without a jacket on. I mean, I've got a long sleeve t shirt on, but when I can go out without a jacket, I'm all smiles. Yep. <laughs> My puppies just look at me and say, do we really have to go to work? We could stay home and play all day, you know, and uh, Labradors <laughs> just don't understand the, the real world. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I don't a lot of times myself. Yep. <laughs> Um, anyway, I was just calling. I keep trying to remember this, and I keep forgetting. So I, I, some plant, a plant that we don't talk about often, just you know, a potted plant, mm-hmm. um, is the airplane plant. Right. I don't know what the real word is, but that's Chlor- what we chlorophytum, call it. chlorophytum, so, and there's several species of it. Yeah. And I just want to say, I've had someone gave me a, a gift uh, probably 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. It has been outside in a pot dies back, comes back. I don't protect it. Doesn't matter what side of the house. Right. And so last year I started nipping off the babies and just sticking them in the ground. Mm-hmm. Well, that worked too. <laughs> it's, you know, it could practically be a ground so, cover. Some years we're going to get a cold enough freeze that it, you know, knocks it out. There is, you know, there are two different variegated forms. Uh, technically, one of them is called variegatum, the other vitatum. The one that has a thicker, thicker, waxier leaf, that is the one that I have found to be most cold hardy. And um, I've had it grow outside in the ground for three or four years. Then we get a really cold winter and it wipes it out. But, you know, you buy a new plant and pretty soon you get 10 new plants and and pretty soon you get 50 new plants coming out of it. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of airplane plants in a hanging basket, in a pot, or in the ground. Just recognizing that if we had a cold winter, it's going to kill it. But, you know, well, usually... You know, but I've yeah. had it for all these years. And mm-hmm. it, we've had that, you know, we had that month of where we were barely at freezing or yep. below, yep. you know. And then we had the ice storm years. And, you know, it's still happy so i don't know what to say <laughs> i'd say you've got a good strain a yep yeah i keep mama in a pot and the rest of them i just you know put in the ground and sure. like i said i don't cover them or anything and it's been all this time and i, I feel like we've weathered some good <laughs> well it's just saying yeah it's, they're, they're very happy with it yeah and they're they're basically three different forms and uh, i grow some of all of them there's a solid green one uh, there is the one, like I say, that is a little narrower leaf, a little bit thicker leaf, variegated green and white. And then there is the little bit thinner green and white leaf, a little bit wider leaf. But uh, all of them are excellent plants and pretty much totally free of insects and diseases. Yeah, this one is a variegated, and it's uh, I'm out here feeling it now. It's not it's not waxy, but it mm-hmm. is a little thick but she's got some age on her too so oh sure but if if you looked up chlorophytum commosum vitatum that is probably what you're looking at but let's just call it variegated airplane plant it'll be good mm-hmm. yeah and in the ground you know of course as nature does um they can they all go in variegated but sure. then some of them end up variegated and some of them don't that's so. the way it is with unstable genetics i have occasionally had pill bugs want to chew on them a little bit in the ground but that's easily <laughs> controlled with genetics uh, yeah yeah slogo <laughs> plus kind of a good term that can be learned <laughs> for a lot of things <laughs> there you go <laughs> well that was a good laugh thank you sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you but unstable genetics was pretty funny uh, you, you, well. <laughs> I think we've got some of that going on across the country these days, but yeah, yeah, don't get me started on that one. Uh, uh, Jeff Foxworthy would have a field day with that. (laughs) Well, listen, good luck with your airplane plants. Anything else I can help you with today? No, sir. That's it. Then you get out and have a good, you have a good Sunday and we'll talk again. I'll talk to Dave now. Good morning, Dave. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning. What's your very favorite red bud? 
My favorite red bud uh, is going to be a variety of Texas red bud, which is called Oklahoma, which usually comes out of California. But uh, if you ask me for the most... And grows best in Illinois. (laughs) Maybe so. But uh, the thing about the Oklahoma variety of the Texas redbud, it's a glossier leaf, so it's not susceptible to anthracnose and some of the other fungi that uh, don't really hurt the plants but make the leaves ugly. And uh, like all redbuds, it prefers a good sunny spot and fairly dry soil. But it's just it's the one that has been longest alive for me and also the most beautiful. Would I mean? Could you use some of them in a understory situation? You can, you can. Now the other red bud that I think is beautiful in an understory situation is the uh, one that is uh, very purple leafed. It's called forest pansy, and uh, it is it is a more striking tree in an understory situation. The blooms aren't quite as dark, but I've seen those things grow up to a trunk eight or ten inches in diameter and you know live 20 years which is probably pretty good for a red bud so i'd think about trying a forest pansy in a shaded situation but uh how tall do they get uh 12 15 feet okay and quite frankly the oklahoma is going to bloom better if it gets more sun uh just depends you know understory can be deep shade or can be pretty bright shade that forest pansy will do almost anywhere oklahoma very definitely wants to be in the brighter part of the understory if i'm going to plant three in a not a real large area would you mix them no i probably well i don't know i'd I probably, I'd, I'd almost have to see the area. I probably would put one of the forest pansies as kind of a background, and then I'd put maybe two of the Oklahomas in front of it. Now, I'll also mention Mexican redbud, Circus Mexicana, and it is uh, a lower-growing, bushier redbud that as far as uh, you know, overall plant shape would be more appropriate in some situations uh it does not have as dark pink a flower and in my experience it has not been quite as long lived but there might be an understory situation where i would choose mexican red bud over the others but if i'm looking for you know just overall beauty and overall flowers it's still going to be oklahoma and forest pansy uh so the mexican doesn't necessarily have the a glossy leaf like the Oklahoma. No, it does not have the glossy leaf, and it grows more as a bushy plant. And quite frankly, in my growing situation, it's never lived as long as the others have, but that might just be my growing situation. Uh, a lot of people are very fond of it, and it is certainly very drought-tolerant, but I just don't think it's as pretty a tree. But, you know, sometimes the understory where – and it tops out at no more than seven or eight feet. Uh, and that's why I mention it because uh, that the, your situation might be different from mine, and it might be a, a more suitable um, shape for you. But as far as growth, no, I'm as growth in color. I'm I'm still going with when the you others. say when you say not as long live. What 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 kind of life would you get out of the Mexican? At one point, I planted a Texas and a Mexican side by side. The Mexican lived eight or ten years, and the Oklahoma lived about twenty. Okay. Eventually, they're all going to be, you know, done in probably by monsoonal situations. Uh, Redbirds hate, you know, a lot of water. And so uh, every now and then we get a spell where the soil just stays saturated. And, you know, that's pretty hard on the trees. But, no, I'd say it was eight or nine years the Mexican lived, and it was close to 20 that the Oklahoma lived. Okay. 
Very good. Thank you. You're do you sure. Have, is, do you have a fair amount in stock? Uh, call over there this morning. A lot of our red buds have just started coming in. Call over and ask Donna or Wendy. They'll be there this morning. They can tell you what we've got out there for sure. I, I walked through, but it was pretty dark when I went through doing my inventories this morning. <laughs> I didn't really pay much attention to red buds, but we don't have them now. We'll get them pretty shortly, and, uh, you know, just let them know if you want. We'll hang on to one for you to be sure it doesn't get away if uh, we don't have it right today. Okay. Thank you. My pleasure, Dave. Thank you, sir. All right. Let's get back to gardening, and the top of the board is Faye. Good morning, Faye. Oh, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Good, good morning. I'm needing to find out from you, Aunt Bates, uh, is come come and get it. Is that one of them? That is the best one for fire ants and harvester ants. Um, the spinosad, which is the killing ingredient, so to speak, will kill just about any ant out there. But uh, in the come and get it, they put it on a bait. They put it on an attractant that is specific to cut ants and, I'm sorry, to uh, harvester ants and fire ants. And it's really very effective. I I put it out when it's dry. I put it out either early morning or evening when the ants are active. And I get pretty close to 100% control with it. And I'm not sure what kind of ants. Uh, I think we got a lot of them. (laughs) Well, and realize that not all ants are destructive. I would start with a come and get it. And then if you have other ants that are bothering you for one way or another, for instance, carpenter ants, I usually control those with nothing more than orange oil and water, maybe a little bit of molasses in there. But uh, if, if the troublesome ants um the come and get it will usually take pretty good care of okay and what right now what i'm concerned about is in my large containers that i want to plant sure and they've they've come in there and um made their home so well um, you can you can use that or if you don't have plants actively growing in there now you can also just mix up your orange oil a couple of ounces to a gallon of water and just drench those pots just uh you know pour it through and that will kill every ant in the world that might be in those pots without doing any damage to the soil i want you to do it before you plant your plants because concentrated orange oil can be hard on plant roots but as far as killing out millipedes ants pill bugs anything that might be present in those pots that's the way you do it and it's totally safe and uh and and very effective oh good because i've got I've already got that on hand and yeah. put a little molasses to uh if you want to add a little molasses it'll make it that much more effective and like when they're tall pots how far down does it have to saturate all the way down it should or? because uh when i've tumped out a pot that had like a fire ant colony in it they're all the way to the bottom of the pot so you pretty much want to get it uh i mean you can pour it in slowly uh you may not want to stand there and just pour it until it runs out the bottom but uh, just go back, you know, if you've got four or five pots to do, put some of it in one, and then go to the next, the next, and then come back and do the first one again. Uh, you'll saturate the soil ease, evenly without wasting much of your mix that way. Okay, good. Um, are they seeking a drier place, or why do they want to go in there? Uh, it depends on the ant. Um, some of these ants feed on organic material. Most of them, it's just an easy soil to dig in. It gives them a good place to physically create the structure for their colonies. And uh, 
uh, you know, you can imagine it's a whole lot easier to dig in one of Faye's pots than it is to go out in the hard ground around. And uh, it's got perfect drainage. It's got good air movement through it. It's just, uh, it's just a nice place to make your home if you happen to be a colony ant. I see. That's probably the story for sure. Because <laughs> they're, they're they're starting to welcome themselves all around. Oh yeah, they're making themselves at home, even though you didn't invite them in. They're kind of like relatives that you don't like. <laughs> right, right. They move near you. So yeah, you can get over that. Yeah, there you go. Uh, um, in terms of outside um, germinating, could, what about if some of the uh, tomatoes are indeterminate and they go clear down into the year mm-hmm. did i start some and, and I, I would start understand. them in pots i wouldn't try them directly in the soil if you're looking okay. for things to direct sow where you are i think you can probably uh-huh. do squash and cucumbers and beans black-eyed peas those things all would be good but my tomatoes peppers and eggplant if i'm starting them from seed they're going to grow up to about four inches six inches tall before i move them from the pot into the garden Okay, that, that that answers really my question. Um, then I think you said there are two varieties, elephant ears. Yes, uh, there is the upright one, one, which is called an alocasia, and the more big spreading one they call a colocasia. Uh, the alocasias have different colors.